0: I'm proud, again, as I said this morning, of our elders for the statement that was on the back page of the bulletin. Um, it's not something that I know they were eager or, or just loving the idea. We've got to publish this statement, but now there are certain, uh, a number of reasons, including even legal reasons. And now the laws of the land have changed on, on marriage to, to state where we stand and other faith communities to do the same. So I'm proud of them for the spirit of grace and the respect uh, for all people in that statement and for the stand on on a biblical, uh, godly perspective on marriage. Tonight I'm going to start out with something that may be surprising to to some of us, but I think it's good to set the stage as we're going to move to to Scripture, to a court decision, and more specifically to us as a community, how we respond um, to changing ideas about sexuality in our culture. And to kind of set the stage, what I want to do is just remind us of our history as a church and how this has been, um, for a very long time, a place where sinners uh, feel welcome, of, of all stripes and all colors, specifically thinking back to to gays and lesbians and, and, and their role in our history as a church. You may be thinking, what role is that? Well, um, Howard Wilson, who for years was the longest surviving AIDS patient in, in America, perhaps in the world, but certainly in America, was, was part of our community here at Preston Crest. Um, men and women who have lived uh, gay lifestyles have come to know Jesus at this church, have been baptized, at this church and who have seen transformation in their life and uh, their views on a wide number of things that have, that's happened here at this church. Um, small groups at Preston Crest have for, for years welcomed members of the gay community into their meetings on various nights of the week. Um, Dallas County Sheriff Lupi Valdez, who is currently with our Guatemala mission group, is, is gay. Um, and she, this is not the first time she's used her vacation time to go with our group to do medical and community mission in, in Guatemala. Now, having said all of this, what may surprise some folks is, is to know, in light of all of that, that Preston Crest is not now or, or has never been um, ambivalent or vague as to our stance on biblical sexuality I know personally, since I've been here, I've preached a number of times about homosexual lifestyles. Um, More than that, I've preached about adultery and extramarital relationships. Um, But we've talked about homosexuality a variety of, of times here. Now, the positive ideal is God's plan is one woman, one man joined in a permanent marriage covenant for a lifetime. And that's what we teach in our pulpit. That's what we teach in our youth ministry. That's what we teach in our marriage preparation uh, ministry together forever. That's what we teach in counseling. And that's what we teach in any venue at this church. And our elders have made very plain in black and white in the bulletin. Now, by the power of of Jesus, um, we have been able to love all different kinds of people Welcome all different kinds of people. And at the same time, teach unashamedly the truth from Scripture. So, Friday, uh, June the 26th, the United States Supreme Court made a ruling um, that you are aware of, I'm sure, that same-sex couples can now marry in all 50 states. And that's why we're talking about this tonight. It seemed like uh, an appropriate night to just kind of talk about this and how we respond to it because the ruling has set off a barrage of reactions healthy unhealthy kind unkind reactions by Christians and reactions by virtually everyone else on social media and beyond the decision has been celebrated by millions the decision has been vilified by millions. It is generally viewed as either the greatest judicial decision of all time or the most evil and wicked judicial decision of all time, and there seems to be little ground in the middle. Such reactions and opinions um, have been widespread. Some have been refreshing. Uh, some have been thoughtful. Most have been very predictable and an incendiary from all sides. So what we want to do this evening, what I'm going to do kind of briefly, we've got six kind of ideas, six kind of thoughts, and these are really for us to think about, to take home, to talk about over coffee, just, just things to kind of consider as we think about the Supreme Court ruling and who we are as a church um, at Preston Crest and beyond, who the kingdom of God is Today, Um, Number one, so six thoughts. Number one is is this, and this is the one we're really going to go talk about several passages tonight. Number one, God's plan for marriage is clear. It's clear in the Bible. Now, there have been blog posts and YouTube videos and snarky Facebook observations that try to cloud the water on this. Um, But the Bible is clear from the beginning all the way through the New Testament. One man, one woman for a lifetime in a covenant with God. Now, yes, there is polygamy in the Bible. Yes, there are cases of rape in the Bible, incest in the Bible. Um, Those things are in the Bible because the Scriptures include the stories of real people of real men and real women, of real sinners. And the Scriptures do not seek to gloss over the defects of real people, but present their stories as is. So loads of examples in Scripture of people missing the mark. The people of the Bible were broken, all of them, with one exception, Jesus Christ. And newsflash, we are broken, all of us are broken, every single one of us. Not a person here who doesn't struggle with sin, honestly. I don't believe there is an adult here tonight that doesn't struggle with some sort of sexual sin or, or temptation or dysfunction. Okay, pretty broad there. But I think to be an adult human being is to struggle to some extent with your sexuality. So while you're going to find a lot of less than ideal manifestations of... Of human sexuality in the Bible and in all of human history, God's ideal is actually pretty clear and very simple. Um, and it not only has bearing on the question of same sex unions or marriages, but also on questions of polygamy, of adultery, of premarital sex. So, our view is informed by Scripture from the beginning, okay? Um, you, don't have to, you don't have to turn many pages in your Bible, perhaps turn one page to get the biblical view of sexuality from the book of Genesis. Um, so it begins there in the beginning. It is echoed by Jesus. It's echoed by the Apostle Paul. Now, let me be clear. Um, I don't believe this is merely our view or the leadership at Preston Crest's view. I am convinced without a shadow of doubt this is God's view. I believe he's been very clear. So I have confidence um, because I know both Jesus and Paul cite um, Genesis chapter 2 as their cornerstone passage uh, from the Bible on marriage. And specifically, um, it is marriage between a man and a woman. One woman, one man. So Genesis 2, we're just going to read a few verses. You, you're familiar with these, but it's good to read them afresh. A um, because this is our authority for what we believe at this church. So Genesis 2, 21 to 24. So the Lord God caused man... Adam is all alone up to this point, okay? So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then God continues, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So the sexual union, the, the becoming of one flesh, is a unique bond that God invented for a man and a woman to enjoy in the bounds of marriage. In the Greek language, and we've talked about this before, there are actually four different words for love. Um, There is phileo love, which is the friendship kind of love, affinity between friends. Agape, unconditional love, most often associated with God. So phileo, agape, storge, which is a family love, the bonds of family, and eros, erotic or sexual love. Now, what makes the marriage relationship special, different, and unique from all other relationships, it is that it is within the marriage covenant that all four forms of love are experienced, where they all come together just as God designed for them to come together. And He designed it down to our anatomy, down to our physical structure. He designed it for one man and for one woman. So this is the go-to passage for Jesus, who we believe is the Son of God, God in the flesh. Um, this is his go-to passage for speaking, specifically in Matthew 19, speaking to a culture. Again, sexual dysfunction, nothing new in 2015. In Jesus' ministry, he is speaking to a, a culture of rampant divorce. Okay? And so this is a passage that he's going to quote it says in Matthew nineteen three to 6. So here's the scene. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to, d- to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus said in verse 4, Haven't you heard, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus says, at the beginning, and he should know because he was there. Um, At the beginning, he says, the Creator made them male and female and created the union of marriage. Paul also used the same passage, his main treatise on marriage, which is on marriage on one level and about Christ and the church on another level, in Ephesians chapter five uh, cites this passage so ephesians five thirty one to thirty three Paul quotes from Genesis two, "For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, so it's a metaphor for the church there. However, he says, however, um, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, importantly, Paul's writings reveal that the issue, or at least versions of the issue that we face today, are nothing new. It was common even in the first century, marriage dysfunction, um, divorce, um, things that fall far short of God's ideals, nothing new, commonplace in the first century. And now he's going to show us that even same-sex attraction and gay lifestyles, nothing new. Very common in various mission points that he worked in, uh, most notably in the city of Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 6, it's important enough that he's going to address this uh, in a letter. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and this is what this is very interesting and this is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God so there were members of the Corinth Church of Christ who were ex male prostitutes there were members of the Corinth Church of Christ who had been, before coming to know Jesus, involved in homosexual lifestyles and all kinds of sexual immorality, heterosexual, homosexuality lists there. Um, Now, there have been some very creative attempts to reinterpret this passage um, to say that this is not prohibiting um, gay lifestyle or or gay... uh, or, um, yeah, gay lifestyle... Um, that really, Paul, is, he's actually dealing with a very technical issue of pagan temple ritual where there was prostitution um, and not what we think of today as gay lifestyle. Um, I would just say, well, I guess my first response would be poppycock to that. Um, studying philosophy what we would consider gay lifestyle very normal among the Greek philosophers. And it wasn't that they were going down to the pagan temple. They had boyfriends, a lot of the the Greek philosophers, so pretty common. Now, quickly, what I would say to these novel interpretations, these new interpretations or attempts to reinterpret Scripture, first, um, I think a couple of really helpful kinds of tools... That help us first is when you run into a a passage that you have some difficulty understanding a more difficult passage. Let's say, um, what you want to always do is, if possible, interpret that difficult passage using passages that are not difficult. In other words, if I have the clear, repetitive teaching of God here. Then that can inform this passage that's maybe a little trickier. I don't know if there's anything tricky to understand about that passage, but if it is, use the big ones like Genesis 2 or Jesus in Matthew 19 to interpret the the more tricky one. Um, So that would be the first one. The second tool would be this. (laughs) If you come up with a novel interpretation of Scripture, you know, one that no Christian or Jewish scholar came up with in, in the first centuries. Um, If you come up with a truly novel and new interpretation of Scripture, it's wrong. It's wrong. You need to rethink that. Um, It's heretical. Um, And there's really not... Yes, there were all sorts of, all kinds of sexual immorality. I mean, all kinds going on in pagan temples. Um, Homosexual... sexual behavior would be one of, of just many kinds, but, but they also had what we would consider more gay lifestyle issues like we know today, um, especially common in Greek philosopher culture, uh, which Corinth is a Greek city. So, points, I guess, for creativity, um, points for trying to explain away a pretty obvious and clear passage, but quite frankly, When you look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, when you look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, and then you go to 1 Corinthians 6, um, you can see that sex outside of the marriage union between a man and a woman uh, is sinful. Now, before we wrap up the first thought tonight, we've got five other thoughts we need to get to. Before we wrap this up, let me point something out quite clearly from Paul's writings um, this is what is so interesting as we kind of think about where we're at as a nation, okay? It's interesting to note that there were men and women in first century churches who experienced same-sex attraction. Uh, there were folks who struggled with their sexual identities. It's clear Paul addresses it. Um, but there were men and women who struggled with same-sex attraction and were choosing to live day-by-day holy lifestyles, day-by-day in purity because of their devotion to Christ. So, I have gay friends. I know a lot of you do as well. Uh, So to be clear, to be very clear, and and words and definitions and vocabulary are very important here. Um, So you want to be super clear on this. To be clear... For a lot of gay people, for Christian gay people, and a lot of them, being gay is not synonymous with necessarily living that lifestyle out. Um, it means for a lot of people that they experience same sex attraction, but choose to, to not yield to that, but to surrender themselves to Christ and His will for their lives. Um, it doesn't mean being being gay or being same sex, having a same sex attraction um, doesn't mean that you. Uh, act on that any more than being straight or heterosexual means, around, means that you go around sleeping with everybody that you're attracted to of the opposite sex, okay? Um, now, some of my gay friends are, are Christian. Some are not. Uh, I had a, a friend at Oklahoma Christian who who was gay and, and is gay. Uh, I, when I went to grad school at OU, I played tennis two or three times a week with, with a guy who was gay, and we hung out together sometimes. Um, In this church, we have individuals, both men and women, who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, They're tempted, but they choose to live in purity. They choose to live in chastity because of their commitment to the Lord, and these people are heroic examples of faith, really are, Um, examples of devotion. And I hope that that the rest of us can take our faith as seriously as, as these folks who are picking up their cross and following the Lord in spite of, of the same-sex attraction that they wrestle with. So once again, uh, the first thought tonight, just review, God's word on marriage in the Bible is quite clear. The second one is, is this, and this is where we get into kind of cashing out where we're at in light of the Supreme Court and what's going on. Um, the second one is this, it's that the church has always been Countercultural. Uh, the church historically gets in trouble when it gets cozy with the government. Um, the church has has a, a long two thousand year tradition of being countercultural, and I'm going to borrow extensively. There's a Canadian blogger and pastor. I put a link to his blog post on my Facebook page, and a lot of you have shared it. Um, his name is is Carrie Newhoff. So. With that out of the way, giving him credit, because I'm going to look at uh, a lot of his ideas were, were very good. In fact, it was the best piece I read after that decision um, by the Supreme Court. So the church has always been running against the grain of society. Um, many of us, uh, most of us perhaps, probably most of us, have lived much of our lives in this unique time when we have watched before our very eyes the nation rapidly in transition between a predominantly Christian culture and an emerging post-Christian culture, after-Christian culture. Uh, If you've lived um, abroad, like if you've lived in in Western Europe, um, and you've lived there, maybe you've been on a job there, or even in the military or something, then you have lived likely in a place where that shift happened probably 20, 30 years ago. Well, it's happening here right now. I remember when I was a kid, and a lot of you guys remember this, some of us were talking about this this week. When I was a kid, I remember uh, pretty much, I mean, not everybody, but most everybody in my hometown on Sunday morning went to a house of worship somewhere. Um, You couldn't go to the store. You couldn't do much on a Sunday because all of the businesses were closed. In fact, they were legally closed. Uh, incentivized or or even required to be closed, that's no longer the case, okay? I don't know anywhere where that's the case anymore. Um, Different people have different views about history and religion, uh, about exactly when and how fast this change has happened, but one thing virtually everybody in America can agree on is this, the world that we grew up in does not exist anymore, okay? It's changed. Um, There were cultural assumptions that were valid 30, 40 years back that are no longer embraced. Um, Some folks rejoice that these assumptions are being shed by our culture. Others, frankly, grieve the changes. Some see the change as a new dawn, a birth for America, and it's a wonderful thing. Others mourn as they would the loss. Of a dearly departed member of their family, they mourn the passing away of these cultural assumptions that they grew up with. Now, whether you mourn or whether you rejoice, this sea change in our culture—pretty um, much everybody agrees—that things today fundamentally different. Um, but really, since the first century, um, hasn't the church, hasn't the kingdom of God, always found itself at odds? with the broader culture, Um, even in our country. uh, And there's a tendency to think, after last Friday's decision, what has happened? Um, The Supreme Court has finally gone and done it. As if the Supreme Court was lining up correct decision after correct decision until Friday. Okay? How about Roe versus Wade? I mean, I mean but, but as I was thinking about it this week, back in 1857, there was a Supreme Court decision uh, that made Abraham Lincoln very angry. Um, it was the Dred Scott decision that decided in the case of Dred Scott that Africans, whether slave or free, could not constitutionally be citizens of the United States. And that wasn't the last decision they made, was it? There was Plessy versus Ferguson later on that basically enshrined racial segregation. Separate but equal. Um, separate high schools, separate drinking fountains, separate uh, soda fountains, separate bathrooms, separate but equal. In fact, my secretary, Barbara Cooper, her first job uh, here in Dallas, she had to use the colored bathroom and drink at the colored water fountain. It wasn't that long ago, and that was legally protected by Supreme Court um, jurisprudence. So, anyway, even at the height of air quotes Christendom, whenever that was, whatever that was, even at the height of Christendom in America, a broad majority of of, of historians would concede that Christianity, as embraced by the state, was significantly different from Christianity as found in Scripture. So, generally speaking, when the church is countercultural. Um, it's helped more than it's, than it's hurt. Um, we, the church, become the best version of ourselves when we offer an alternative, a, a distinct alternative to the culture around us, not just a blended or compromised version of our faith that fits nicely with everything that's going on around us. So here's the, th- the third thought tonight. And this I, th- I found very helpful from his article. The third thought is this. It is weird to ask non-Christians to hold Christian values. It's just strange to think that someone who is not a Christian will think like a Christian. Um, I wouldn't expect a Longhorn to root for the the Aggies, okay? I wouldn't expect someone who is political... I wouldn't expect someone who voted for Barack Obama to to vote for Sarah Palin, okay? I just wouldn't expect that. That would be very surprising, honestly. And why should I expect a non-Christian to think and behave like a disciple of Jesus Christ? Why why would I think that? Um, Studies have been pointing out for some time that more and more... Um, And now, a majority of people in America would be best described as as post-Christian, okay? It's a version of non-Christian. If a believer cherishes sex as a beautiful gift from God to be experienced between a man and a woman within the the bounds of of a marriage covenant, why would a believer expect those who don't follow Christ to embrace that? I mean, really, Why? Why would they? Um, Why would we expect non-Christians to remain faithful to their spouse for their entire life? Why would we expect non-Christians to faithfully give to the local church? Why would I expect non-Christians to clean up their language? Um, Why would I expect non-Christians to be truthful and honest in paying their taxes? Why would I assume that they would pass laws? Why would I assume that non-Christians would pass laws as if the entire nation were Christian. Why would I assume that? Really, why would I make those, have those expectations? Why would I have those assumptions? Now, I think I speak for all of us probably when I say we all desire for people to come to know the Lord, to move deeper in fellowship with the Lord. I long for all people to come into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, to delight in His Word, to delight in His holiness, um, to have their decisions and their attitudes shaped by His holy Word, I don't, however, expect non-Christians to think and behave like Christ followers. Why, why would I? By the way, if, I profess, um, if we profess Christ, then I think we absolutely should expect one another to behave like Christ followers. Um, we'll look at this in a minute, but it's a bit of a problem when the church is expecting people outside the church to act like Christians, but kind of turns a blind eye to people in the church who aren't acting like Christians. Number four, um, we have honestly been dealing with same, uh, we have honestly been dealing with sex outside of traditional marriage for a very long time. It is nothing new. And we're talking about sex outside of marriage as an issue in our churches, um, right in here. And if we hold that gay sex is sinful, there's morally no distinction between that and straight sex outside of marriage. Okay. Um, so sex outside of marriage or outside of this this biblical ideal has been around for a long, long time. It's been an issue in the Lord's church for a long, long time, at least since Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, Lust and porn, uh, premarital sex for teenagers, for young singles, for old singles, uh, adulterous relationships, these are all distortions of God's design for our sexuality and we need to be consistent. Um, If we are going to fight for marriage, and that means that we're going to hold that gay marriage is outside of God's plan, then by all means, let's make sure that we are giving the same attention to to what we've always been wrestling with, Um, namely sex outside of of its God-given context. So we need to make sure that we're not giving it some sort of special attention while we ignore what's going on in our church or in Christian churches at other places. Uh, Number five, the early church, and I think this is very helpful, the you go back and you think really about primitive Christianity, you think about the early Christians. The early church number five has never looked to the government for guidance. Okay, when it comes to questions of our faith. We don't have a history since the early church of looking to the government for guidance. If we live in a day and age where the government doesn't embrace our kingdom values, then we are in some really good company, okay? Because that puts us right there with our New Testament sisters and brothers. Their governments certainly did not embrace kingdom values. Jesus asked a lot of people to repent and to change. He never asked Rome to repent and change. And actually, when multitudes came to him and tried to make him Caesar, when they tried to make him king, uh, by force here on earth, he told them, My kingdom? Not of this world. Not of this world. Then there's this guy, Paul, who we frequently find in the book of Acts in front of different legal authorities Festus and Felix in the Roman court in, in uh, Caesar's court in Rome. We, this guy is routinely finding himself in, in legal entanglements with the government. And when he was, every single occasion where we find that, he is bold and he is courageous in preaching Christ. But never once do we find him asking Rome to change its laws. And Rome, well, yeah. Yeah. It was not a Christian government, okay? Um He did ask public officials to accept Jesus, to surrender their lives to Christ, uh, become disciples of Jesus. So instead of expecting the government to bolster our faith, maybe we should try to be more like the early church in how we pray and how we treat outsiders and how we share Christ and how we fight. Poverty and injustice in how we love one another. Um, now certainly I put a footnote here and say I think one thing that we're all aware of and concerned about, and, and we should be, is um, our Constitution and the fact that it protect, protects religious freedom. I think we're all going to be watching um, carefully to see what happens next because those, uh, have been, th- those protections have been enshrined for a very long time since the beginning. Um, in our country, so we're very interested in that. Um, But as the Christian church in the first century lived in such a different way um, in their love and in their generosity, the world of their time took notice, even Rome took notice. So instead of looking for the courts to stand up for Jesus, uh, early Christians called out to God, and we can do that as well. And then the final thought tonight is this. Um, Number six, when believers are unkind toward the gay community, believers lose out on any potential relationship with the gay community. Um, And let's remember, Jesus was well known as being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Uh, Maybe some people are okay with that that they're not going to have any relationships with members of the gay community. They're perfectly fine with that. I don't think Jesus would be okay with that. Um, sometimes, and I think maybe you've had this experience the last couple of weeks, sometimes you just kind of have to give Twitter and Facebook a break, you know, time out. Um, sometimes you just kind of have to step away because social media can get so ugly and uh, honestly, I haven't read just a whole lot of what's been popping up on Facebook since the SCOTUS decision, um, because the little bit I saw was just kind of mean, and it was just kind of ugly, and it was on both sides. It was just vitriolic. Um, So think about this. Paul wrote, um, as Paul's writing his letters, he wrote uh, right in the middle of his treatise on sexuality and sexual sin and God's ideal, right in the middle of that, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, check out what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. I think this is something we really need to consider and think about. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, he said, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Verse 13, God will judge those on the outside. That's pretty helpful. It really is. Um, With people on the outside, with people who don't know Jesus, with people that can't tell the difference between 1 Timothy and the book of Psalms, right? I mean, with people on the outside who don't know Jesus, Paul is all things to all people. Um, He just didn't go around wagging his finger at non-Christians and condemning. Um, He told the Christians in Corinth, stop judging folks on the outside of the church. Be concerned with your community. Um, Kerry Newhoff noted in his blog post that judgment is a very lousy evangelism strategy. I think he's right. Um, Know what? Um, when it comes to being judged, most people say, no thanks. I don't want to be judged by you. Um, So if you want to keep being, he writes in his blog post, if you want to keep being ineffective at reaching unchurched people, then keep right on judging them. Um, Paul wanted to reach the lost with the gospel. And so should we. So we need to be very careful About the words that we choose, about what we post, about comments that we make, about expressions on our faces, about our tone of voice. Um, We have to be careful about those things. And as we close, let's remember that we are a people saved by the grace of God. Um, We are not saved by our goodness, we are not saved by our righteousness, but in our wretched sinfulness. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Um, His amazing grace is our salvation. And so let's commit to being salt and light in our mission field of Dallas, Texas. Let's commit to being a community of faith um, that holds up Christ in our city. Um, And let's remember that we were bought with a price. Now, we're going to sing a song here in just a second. Before we do that, let's, I want to pray as we finish this time, and then we'll sing in just a moment. Father God, give me and give each of us a great sense of humility and a great sense of love. As we say here in this place, give us a passion for you and give us a compassion for people. We are a people saved by your grace, not by our track record of noble deeds or righteous acts. We've been saved by grace. May we be shaped by grace as well. May this congregation, may Preston Crest, be a light in this city drawing people to your love. Is in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's worship together. Be standing.